We're, uh, we're looking at probably it's the fourth chapter uh, from License to Kill, Brian Hedges' book, where I take uh, much of my outline from, and then I flesh that out to to see what we need uh, for Sunday morning, and I've done that again. But we looked last week primarily at uh, the nature of sin and how it works. We focused just for a moment on James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We talked about the strategy of the flesh and the sequence of sin that you find in those passages there. After that, we began just looking at some specifics about how sin operates, and without going through all of them again, I'll take you down to where we were. We were talking about the allurements of this age. We talked about uh, loving, not loving the world. We talked about Paul's experience briefly with a co-worker named Demas who left him, he said, because he loved this present world. Uh, after that, we looked at just our natural desire for the flesh, and we went just for a moment to that uh, passage in Romans chapter 7 and looked specifically at verse 18 where Paul says, For I know that in me, and in, in parentheses you'll find there in the Word of God, he says, In my flesh. That's what he's talking about. In my flesh, he says, Nothing good dwells. So we know that even though uh, we work and we follow Christ, uh, we fill our minds and our hearts, our very being with the Word of God, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. And yet we're reminded each and every day that it's God's grace through justification that's made us what we are and that the principle of sin still remains in us. Why do we take a few moments to dwell on that? It's just to kind of get our feet back on the ground about a continual battle. As I said last week, we see this uh, phraseology throughout. We see it with Peter. We see it with Paul. We see a little more of it today in some of the scriptures. You know, I call it war language. And Paul call it war, battle, and so forth. talks about being aware of what's going on. We began by looking at a focal verse that, that really takes us into this study from 2 Corinthians 2.11 where Paul was talking about the necessity of forgiveness. And we pick up with that scripture where he is encouraging the believers there to forgive. And he says, lest Satan should take advantage of us. And then he says, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I shared that last week. He's not talking about just the fact that we know that the devil is out there doing what he does. It's more specific than that. We can know to some degree what he's doing and how he does it. Some of this we know from experience. We know from trial and error in our life, don't we? So that's kind of brings us up to where we are. I wish I'd have kept you about three more minutes and gone one more step because there's a, a third part to that that takes us to First Peter and then to Job. But we'll begin our lesson right there in just a moment. So let's have a word of prayer first. Well, thirdly, when we're looking at how indwelling sin is aided within us, we talk about specifically the schemes of the devil, which I just quoted from Second Peter. Look, in First Peter 5.8, I find it interesting where Peter talks about the devil roaming around, you know the scripture I trust, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We touched on this verse and the Job verse we'll look at here in just a moment. We touched on it in the uh, uh, discipleship training seminar that we went through, biblical counseling. With, uh, with Nicholas Ellen, and he made a comment right up front. Uh, uh, you may remember if you were in the men's group, I think that's where he made it, about 
the fact that when Peter was tempted, that uh, the devil chose Peter. He landed on Peter to tempt him. Some of you men who were there may remember this. But he says it's an interesting comparison when you consider the fact that back in Job, chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, that God offered up Job. Two different things. God offers up Job. He tells Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I don't know about you, but that, that makes my uh, skin crawl. Uh, whereas, whereas with Peter, it was like, you know, Jesus said, he said, hey, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. He's after you. And uh, I like what John MacArthur says. He says, so Peter said, well, you told him no, right? You told him, you know, no. But he didn't do that. He did not do that, did he? In fact, he made a remark. He said, and when you are turned, when you are converted, you may see it translated. But when you've gone through that experience, and when you've gone through it and you've learned from it and you're coming back around, he said, you can strengthen your brother and you can do that. You'll be, a, I guess you could say, a healed helper. So Dr. Ellen, I call him Dr. Ellen. He's not yet, I don't think. But he said, you, uh, somebody could do a paper. Somebody's trying to finish up their seminary work or something can do a paper comparing the fact that Peter was picked, he was attacked, and yet Job was offered up. You think about that dynamic and how difficulties and trials uh, work out in our life. You know, those trials are there sometime to build us up and to edify us. And what you'll find in Job, you know, the this, this scene where... The sons of God come before, before God, and uh, Satan is there, and we have this conversation that we're privy to. Job's not privy to it, but we are. And he says to Satan, he says, where have you been? Where, wherefore do you come? He says, I've been roaming around. I've been going around to and fro in the earth. He asked him that twice. I think it's interesting because Peter tells us what he's doing. Of course, Satan there in his deceit doesn't say anything to God, and he doesn't need to say anything to God because God knows. And it's evident what he's been doing because the next thing God says indicates that he knows what he's doing because he just goes right to the fact. He says, well, have you considered my servant Job? I know what you're doing. You're doing exactly what Peter says you're doing. You're seeking whom you may devour. That's what you're doing, and that's what he does. And I go back to to hit on that just a little bit from the New Testament and then up or from the Old Testament and then up to the New Testament, because we see that that is His work. It's about destruction. It's about taking us down. And if our soul belongs to God, if we're truly born again, the only thing that He has to do for us is to damage and influence our testimony to the point that we, we're shelved. We can't do anything. We have difficulty. So it's, it's always a wake-up call. I don't care if it's the smallest thing in our life. It's always a wake-up call about what our life is supposed to be and, and how we're, we're trusting Christ and depending on Him to give us strength lest we fall. And we can't take the attitude, well, you know, I'm protected by God. And, you know, we, the Bible says that we are in this battle. There is going to be a battle. Now, that should serve to, to drive us to the Word of God. It should serve to give us discipline in our life about the things that we do and don't do. The Bible is filled with admonitions and directions for us. Another lesson or a multitude of lessons for another day. But I'm of the opinion that from time to time, it helps us to go back and look. Lest Peter would say, he says, you know, be sober-minded about this. Be right 
thinking about this. Don't, don't get out of balance thinking that just because we're here at church all the time or whatever, that we're not bait for Satan's doings because we are. We are. I'll give you a personal example. Um, just one night, I remember at one of our community groups, uh, a lady, I was talking to a lady, and she was uh, giving me some information and asking about a certain direction for our class. And I don't know, uh, she asked me a question when I answered her. You know, I was immediately, I wasn't happy with the tone or the inflection with which I responded to her. And I was watching her, and it was, it was immediately perceptible that she's like, well, you could have been a little nicer about that, you know, and that wasn't my intention. I wasn't even thinking about it. You know what it was? It was the end of a long day is what it was. It was the end of a hard day. That's all it was. And, uh, and I immediately realized that. So what did I do? I immediately got her attention, and I said, let me, let me rephrase that, okay? Because quite frankly, here was a lady who wanted to do something and wanted to help and was asking me about a, a certain course of action. And it's a small thing, but, you know, that's the way things start. We can cause people to, to lose confidence, you know, lose direction just by the way that we act. It's a job sometimes to act like Christ, is it not? We don't have a hope apart from His indwelling Spirit and the Word of God. We know that, but the flesh remains. And Hedges says that the flesh deceives the mind and entices the affections. It deceives the mind. It entices the affections with the goal of winning the cooperation of our will. So you've got the flesh working against our affections, trying to gain our affections, that which we focus on, that which we crave, we settle upon. And he says that will eventually affect our will. And when it does, sin is conceived so that sin can begin its march of murderous intent. That's how he titles this particular fourth chapter, I would remind you, with murderous intent, because it is a battle. So we move from there into the fact that sinful desire does indeed deceive the mind. And I want to share some statements and phrases with you strictly from the book here. I think they'll serve to help us think rightly as we, as we move on. And if you caught it in, in my prayer, we're going to end, I trust we'll end, with talking about something that's very, very positive, that we can have the mind of Christ, and as believers do indeed have the mind of Christ. So let's work through some of this, and we'll, we'll get through it, and then we'll, we'll finish with that if I do a good job with my time here. He says that the mind is the faculty of the human personality that thinks and discerns. We know that. He says that's why temptation usually begins with deception. And, of course, we've discovered and understand that that is totally consistent with evil. Its weapon is deception, is it not? We talked from James again last week about the, the bait and switch, and that's the exact terminology that's, that's used. You know, you know uh, we see something we think is good, it's sinful, we think it will satisfy, and we turn out being the victim. So it's all about deception. I don't know about you, I don't like being deceived. I don't like that. I don't like being deceived. Uh, I shared with community group Friday night along those very lines, and if you're here, you'll get it again, but was talking about this issue of deception in our life and realizing that Satan has had a hand in, quite frankly, duping us over something, even if it's just for a moment, even if it's just in a response, a wrong response to someone. 
And my attitude, I know on one occasion was, you know, I just, I hate that. I feel like I've, I've been used, you know, I've been molested, I've been taken advantage of. But to dig a little deeper with my response, I soon realized that the way I was responding to that was quite prideful. I was more concerned about the fact that he had overcome me, okay? That the devil had overcome my defenses. You follow what I'm saying? And there's no strength in that. There's none. Now, if I begin to think about what God's Word says and what I should have done and how I got to that point, or as Jonathan Edwards says, he goes back and he, he counts back or he takes it back to the point of influence. He goes back when he realizes that he's done something wrong and he's trying to figure it out. And we'll learn something about ourselves. But as, even in that, even in trying to decipher the impact of evil in our life, that's a battle within itself because if we respond wrongly, we gain no ground. We gain no ground and we're subject to commit the same thing again. So think about that. He says that if the mind can be tricked into thinking that sin promises more happiness than can be gained through righteousness or is less dangerous than it really is, the affections are more likely to bite. And when we read something like that, you might want to say, well, duh, well, it's that simple. How many times are we overcome by that particular lack of knowledge? We don't, we lose track of what's going on with us. We get too close to sin or we just disregard it. We might have a little higher opinion, perhaps, of our own spirituality than is healthy for us at that particular time. And we allow him to creep in. And anyone who engages in this, without a doubt, will we'll realize very soon, as we keep saying, that it is a battle, it is a war, it is constant. But thank God we are not left without resources. The mind, Hedges says, serves as the surveillance system of the soul. And you could say there, if you want to study that in the Word, you could say conscience. You know, I, I challenge you just to get a good concordance or somebody and look up the word conscience in the New Testament and go back and read about the conscience and what the Bible says, particularly in Romans chapter 2 where it talks about the fact that it can accuse or it can excuse. We talk about let your conscience be your guide. I suggest you really examine that. Okay, Conscience can be your guide if the foundation is right. But trust me, I can tell you from my work in law enforcement, there's a lot of people who go by their conscience and they'll kill you, okay? They don't have a problem with that. So it has to do with the foundation of the conscious. None of this works, as we said up front. None of this mortification works if you're not a believer, if you don't have the power of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit residing in you. Well, that's the surveillance system of the soul. But do go back and read and study today, maybe Romans 2, beginning with verse 15 there. Well, he does this in several ways. He deceives the mind in several ways. And he says that sinful desire exploits our natural weaknesses and limitations. It does. That's a good place to begin. Most people know, as we say, that, you know, if we're hungry, what's it? HALT, I think is the acronym, H-A-L-T. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Do you find yourself... A little more fodder is a, is a, for being a victim. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, 
are tired. And we're just talking about understanding ourselves, having a little discipline in our life. You know, sometimes it's as simple as maybe tabling, talking about a certain issue with your spouse until, I guess, maybe you've eaten or you've had a little rest or something. I don't know. But uh, we can have a, a tough day, and this is when our flesh tends to rise up because it has its natural inborn weaknesses. I tried to think through some of this. Uh, it wasn't in the particular study in License to Kill, but I tried to look through some of this and find Bible examples. You, know, you think about sinning and, and hunger having an influence on it. Can you think of anything? Think of one for sure. What guy jumped off into sin? I'll give you a hint. He sold his birthright. Because he was hungry, wanted some stew, okay? Sold his birthright. Or what about uh, anger? Now, I thought about, you probably go to a couple of places for this, but I thought about Moses. You know, he saw one of his brethren, it says, being mistreated, and he rose up and uh, he wound up killing an Egyptian because he got a little angry at what he saw. And then I had to, and I'll admit, uh, I might get in trouble here, but I stretched a little bit when I talked about David being lonely. But uh, he was either lonely or lazy. I don't know which. But the Bible says that at the time when kings go out to battle, that David was found back at the palace. Okay? And that's when he, moping around, he went up on top of the house and saw a lady taking a bath. Okay? And you know what happened after that. But just an example to show us. It just takes a little crack. As I prayed, a little chink in the armor. Just a little crack. Or even back to Moses. You know, he was tired of hearing the whining and the sniveling of the people. So what did he do? Instead of speaking to the rock, what did he do? He whacked the rock, okay? And that was extremely costly for him, was it not? I've often wondered about that. Until Dr. Ellen, that's another paper somebody can write. Why was his, why was his punishment so severe? Hey, man, you mean I can't go into the promised land because of this? Okay. Yeah, he had a lot of responsibility, didn't he? But to be sure, our physicality, our flesh has an impact. And we need to know ourselves. We need to know ourselves. Not for our sakes, not just to make our day better, but that we might be servants of Christ in every situation. Secondly, he talks about that sinful desire tricks the mind into thinking that sinning is no big deal. You may think, well, I've been walking with Christ a long time. Hey, I've been to the biblical counseling conference seven or eight times. You know, I'm way past all this. And the Bible would speak to that too, would it not? If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. We don't ever get out of this. We never get out of it. And we never will until when? Until our salvation is realized, it's complete, and glorification is a reality for us. No. And this serves to keep us close to God if our true desire is to lift Him up and to live for Him because it never stops. Sin's goal is that we would increasingly excuse our own motives for sin. How many times when we talk to friends or, God forbid, they're, they're talking to us, they've confronted us, and we go right to rationalization. We, we go right to explanation and really, we should bring to bear what the Spirit of God is definitely doing in the heart of a believer. You can't deny that. In fact, I'd say if it ain't doing something, you got another problem. All right? The Spirit of God is dealing with us over our words, over our actions, over our neglects in life, our sins of omission. 
And when we're confronted, cut to the chase. Admit it. Deal with it. And grab that, that brother or sister and let them know that you appreciate their courageousness. Is this not one of the more difficult things to do for whatever reason in the family of God? To lovingly go to someone and give them a, a little nudge, a little admonition about something in their life because you love them and care about them. And really, I trust, because you want the same thing from them. You are open to that kind of influence in your life. You don't consider it, you know, somebody trying to act holier than thou or whatever, or act above you. You listen to what they're saying, and you allow the Word of God to be the deciding factor. We overestimate the pleasure that we expect sin to deliver. Now, that's part of the deception, is it not? part of the deception. And I trust as we move on in our Christian life that we get beyond that. I think that might, you may have a comment that would, would challenge my, my comments here, but I think that's something that you see in a lot of young believers primarily. You know, if we've been around the block a few times as a Christian, we know beyond any shadow of doubt the consequences of sinful acts, don't we? Sinful words, sinful conduct. We know that. You know, so what does it, it remains that normally we probably wind up in a situation where we're actually, our will is given over. Okay, we've, we've studied on something, we've pondered on something too long, we've tried to rationalize it so many ways that it's weakened our defenses. And I would hope just from going through uh, a day like today, or yet another morning like this morning, that we would be mindful that we would be on our guard the next time we sense that going on in our heart. I've been challenged about something in my heart. And I'm not dealing with it straightforward. I'm not dealing with it according to the Word of God. I'm rationalizing and trying to justify it. It uh, underestimates the pain and the consequences that we expect sin to produce. And we'll just simply say here that's again part of the deception, you know. Nothing has changed from the garden. It's still him saying, has God indeed said? Is that really what he said? Is that exactly what the word of God means? Does that really apply to you in this situation? See, the rationalization process. Thirdly, he says that sinful desire leads us to abuse God's grace. This is some dangerous ground. Abusing the grace of God. And normally what you see there is these attitudes that, that come out. People might say, if God's promised to pardon our sins, then, then we really don't need to worry. We're presuming upon the grace of God. Uh, I would say if someone takes that kind of posture, that kind of attitude about sin, uh, that their understanding of grace and their understanding of their own need for forgiveness might be faulty. It might be faulty. They would say and actually take God's grace for granted. See, that, that moves more toward the, the uh, actions and attitudes of a person who doesn't believe. And after all, isn't that what we do when we sin in any way? That's what we're doing. We're acting like an unbeliever. I think that's one of the things that makes it so egregious is that as believers, we know better. We have the Word of God. We have the infilling of God's Spirit. We have no excuse. And then yet, on occasion, we lose this battle with the flesh 
and indwelling sin. We could go to Hebrews chapter 10 verse and look around. Is it Hebrews chapter 10? I had six. I hope I wrote, I hope I wrote the right one. Or wrote the right one down. And it was looking particularly at that verse that talked about they trample underfoot the Word of God. I rewrote. Is that not it? Is it six? Okay. I had 1029. Is that right? Let me find it. Yeah, there we are. For some reason, I convinced myself that was wrong. Well, he's talking here about living by faith and the difficulties that some have and talking about the punishment. In verse 29, he says, of how, how much worse punishment do you suppose will be? Uh, will he, my goodness, I can't see. Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Now go back and read this. You know, obviously that's talking about uh, someone responding in unbelief. Only to make the connection here that that's what we do each and every time we act like an unbeliever. Okay? Yes, in this case, a believer is justified. God's standing in for them. But it helps me to go back and look at this. There are people all over who don't believe. Okay? And their nature, their very nature, because they haven't been born again, is to trample underfoot the things of God. To insult the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be, I don't want to be accused of that in any realm, do you? Not as a believer. I don't, I don't want people to look at my life and see anything that even closely resembles that. What a difficulty that brings upon us in our witness. Great difficulty. Well, it leads us to abuse God's grace. And then lastly, he says that we assume a greater liberty than God allows. Well, Paul sets a standard for us. He talks about, <clears throat> Corinthians there, he says, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, then I'll eat no meat. I mean, think about that principle when you're deciding about issues of Christian liberty and so forth. I mean, is that really our standard? Is our standard, well, how much can I actually do here or be involved in and not violate the Word of God? Or is our standard, hmm, there may be a weaker brother or sister looking at my example and it affects them, can affect them, will affect them. Is that really what we're looking at? See, It brings into question what our true motivations are and where our loyalties lie. Are we truly, truly trying to work out our life, our Christian life, in fear and trembling and reverence and awe, as it says. Are we trying to do that? Or are we just trying to see, still dealing with that old attitude about, well, how much can I do here and really not have to act like a Christian? Because I'm going to be in a group of people that aren't Christians and it's always tough anyway, okay? I mean, I was the designated driver for years, okay? You know what I'm talking about? High school? Well... A lot of times what falls out from this is that we interpret Scripture wrongly or we resort to some sort of twisted logic because it's very, very difficult to hear the voice of God from Scripture if you're harboring sin in your life. Is it not? Very difficult to do that. It'll hinder that. It'll certainly hinder our worship. Christ talked about that plainly. You, you come up to 
to worship, talking about giving an offering, and you realize that your brother, your sister has something against you. This is all about what's going on within you, is it not? Between your ears, your brother or sister has something against you. What's his admonition? What's his clear direction? Leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother or your sister. And then you can worship. How important are these relationships? How important are they? We don't have any business worshiping, you know, unless we're right in our heart. Certainly this is the thinking behind our, and the command again behind, you know, in the Lord's Supper. We take time to do what? To examine our heart before we involve, you know, perhaps the greatest act of worship. When we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, we remember that. We want to come clean that we can be acceptable. And I can tell you there are times when, uh, you know, I'm out there passing the, the juice and the, the cup around and a dear brother or sister in Christ, I can see it, they will not partake because they're doing what the Bible says. They're in the midst of dealing with something. This is serious. It's very serious. But it's glorious too because when we obey God, when we obey Him, what happens? Everything that He has for us as believers, as His servants, is at our disposal. It is endless. We are absolutely insured of His victory and success. That's the kind of God that we serve. I'm so thankful for that. It's all because of Him. Well, sinful desire thirdly entices the affections. The mind is the discerning faculty of the soul. And if it is, then the affections are the embracing faculty of the soul. And that's just to take a moment and once again wrap our mind around the fact that what we desire, what we crave, what we set our affections upon will generally guide us. It'll guide our time. It'll guide our pocketbook. Okay? It'll guide our words and everything about our life. That which motivates us. That which we set our affections upon. The mind is deceived. Then the affections are enticed towards sin. We go back to this issue about deception. Galatians 6, 9 talks about not being deceived because God can't be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. We've already talked about James 1.22 where he talks about being doers of the word and not just hearers. What's the end of that verse? Deceiving your own selves. We see this element of deceit again. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and 11, he talks or introduces that long list of sins that begins with fornication and everything else. He says, be, don't be deceived. This element of deception goes on. I stumbled across... Uh, an excerpt from uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer that I think is insightful. Um, I often hesitate to read, much less read a paragraph. But I'm going to read this one, and I hope you'll listen because it's very insightful. You know who he was. You know, he was imprisoned in, uh, during World War II, and he was eventually hung or shot. Uh, one or the other, I don't recall, but he was executed. But during that time, he wrote a lot. Listen to this. In our members, he says, there is slumbering inclination toward desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes master over the flesh. 
All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us as we seek all our joy in the creature. He's obviously thinking about Romans 1 there. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The, question present, the questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me, yes, expected of me now, here in my particular situation to appease desire? It is here, he says, that everything in me rises up against God. I thought that was specifically insightful from a man who had a a lot of time, if you will, to sit and to think about what was going on in his own life, penning some words for us to share this morning. This is the nature of it. And we're well advised to be advised of it continually, not just the reality of it, That's overwhelming, I admit. I'm in the same boat. But then to know what God has provided for us. We close out this chapter. He asks us a couple of questions. How do you know if you've been seduced? Ask yourself, he says, the following diagnostic questions. And if you've got this little book, Killing Sin, it's on page 46 in the book. He says, do I find myself frequently thinking about something sinful? Do I? Is my imagination, and I've got that underlined here, my imagination, that which I think about, that which manifests my desires, is it possessed by some sinful object, attraction, or desire? Is it? 2 Peter 2.14 talks of those, and it's actually speaking of some false teachers, but it it sets upon the, the situation with mankind, unregenerate mankind, by saying that they have eyes full of adultery, that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And I added this for two reasons. That again focuses on the flesh in general, which we all have, which only the Word of God and the Holy Spirit can overcome. But that last part, enticing unstable souls. Let's not forget that our sinful actions, our sinful conduct, our sinful thoughts impacts other people. It impacts other people. In our study in the conference, we talked about, I think it was nine different things that bring difficulty into our life. And many of them aren't things that we control. It's difficulties brought into our life because of the sinful actions of others. And this is what we want to be aware of right here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, again speaks of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, these three overwhelming, I like to call them umbrella areas. I I challenge you to find any sin in the Bible or anywhere else that does not come under one of these categories here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. We know this. Uh, And then in Job 31, along this line, he says, regarding how things come into us, you know, we said earlier they come in through our mind. Well, how do they get in our mind? A lot of times they come in through our eyes, don't they? Things that we see. He says in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. 
I've made a covenant with them. Why then should I look upon a woman? He's made a determination. He's chosen to discipline himself in this area. And we think about Job being offered up by God. Have you considered my servant Job? We, we might think, well, he's beyond all this, is he not? No, he's not. No, he's not. He just believes God. He trusts God. He knows God. God knows him. And he knows he needs to do what Daniel did. He needs to purpose in his heart. That's what he needs to do. He needs to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going there. I don't care who wants to drag me over or where they want to take me. I am not going there. That's the practical side of this. He asked another question. Do I dwell on sin with private pleasure? When I think about some temptation to sin, do I taste its sweetness with the tongue of my soul? Isn't it ugly that we can think about things, just think about them? God writes down sin. In fact, Matthew 5.28 tells us that in some cases, without even committing the act, just by thinking, what does he write down? Adultery. That's what God writes down. Or when there's hate in the heart toward a brother, it's the same thing as murdering that person, Matthew 5.22. On a moral plane, it's the same as murder. To consider someone of no account, what's the word used? Raka, you know. That's what it means. You just, you just don't exist. Okay? You're just so, so worthless. Because in our heart, we've murdered that person. Listen, God knows and hears. He knows the desire of the heart. He knows what's there. We may be able to hide it, but He knows what's there. We do many things to rationalize You hear these kind of phrases. It's just a little sin. No one is perfect. God will forgive me. He's promised to do that. I won't go too far. I'll give this up soon. All of those are deceptions. And he says that such is the language of sin in a deceived deceived and enticed heart. We don't want to play with it too long. We want to call it what it is. Bring God's Word to bear on it. And then move, move very quickly away from sin. I've got just enough time to go, as I said, and drive us toward... A, I want you to leave this morning with some positive scriptures in your mind about how we are overcomers and what God has done. And there's so many things that we could say. But I take from the lesson something that I just kind of flesh out here with some additional verses because it talks about... Uh, uh, providing uh, how God has provided discipline for us through our minds. We can, as it says, have the mind of Christ. I go first to Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Isn't it interesting there that you don't have a list of do's and don'ts right here in this particular verse? What does he say? You start with the mind, Romans 12, 2. The renewing of your mind. Change the way that you think. Fill your mind with the Word of God. Be overcome. Be flooded with the Word of God. I'll say be Berean. Okay? Dig on it. Find, find the minute answers, the minute influences in the Word of God. And you'll learn more about yourself. And how to combat sin. This is how God works in us to change our minds, change the way we think. And that's what 
That's what manifests various words and actions in our life. Right. Sir? There's no shortcuts in order. No, sir. I wish there were. No, as we said, this is a life, lifelong process. Lifelong process. You know, and even studying the Word of God, it's not like you read the Bible through once and you've got it. You know, I try to read the Bible through every other year, just reading the Bible as a whole through. And um, every time I go through it, it's like I'm reading it for the first time. Okay, I see something else. I'm focused on something else. Or likewise, in, in teaching, I've got basically three uh, 10 to 12-week lessons that I teach at His Steps, and I, I rotate through them. Uh, you know, the Tale of Two Sons, Luke 15, I've taught six times. But each and every time I go through it, God does another work in my heart. To say nothing about the fact he just goes back and hammers once again those principles. And the one I love most dear in there is that when he came to the end of himself, that is so critical. And I can't go there. I'm tempted to, but I'm not. Okay. But listen, let's move in. Uh, you're right, though, John. It never, never stops. I trust that's the answer you wanted to hear. This is the answer. Ephesians 4, 22 and 23 talks about Paul again talking about putting off and he'll use this phraseology, and it's literally he's talking about like clothing. That's the mind, that's the picture, the mind picture he's putting on. Take this nasty piece of garment off and put on this clean one. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. But he says again, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We see it again right here renewed in the spirit of your mind. It can happen. It, the Word of God will change the way you think. It will. And if it changes the way you think, it'll change the way you talk. And if it changes that, it'll change the way you act. And it'll give you courage over things that you used to neglect in your life for God. The Word of God will do that. As we move along, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who He has... For who has known, rather, the mind of the Lord, that we may instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. You see it again. You see it again in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, we're in 1 Peter now, 4.1, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, He says, and here's this military language again, arm yourself. Like you're going to battle, like you're going to war. Arm yourself also with the same mind. The same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And boy, I tell you, if you start digging on this verse, you soon realize that what he's talking about here is, is martyrdom. He's talking about an attitude that would allow us, because of our commitment to Christ, we're not concerned about our own life, what it might cost. Now listen, if you're to that point... In your life, if you're truly to that point because of the, your love for the Savior, you're not going to have a, a whole lot of problem with some of the other more mundane things in our social life just because some neighbor or some relative might ridicule you a bit or call you a religious fanatic, okay? No, not if you're willing to die for Christ and for the cause of Christ. That's a small thing comparatively, is it not? These four verses, they're all Paul, well, Peter on the end here, Three times Paul, Peter, talking about the fact that our minds can be changed. We can have a renewed mind. Thank God we can. God's provision prevents the flesh from accomplishing its desire through warnings 
and through discipline. Specifically, Psalm 19.11 is talking about the Word of God. And you know that discourse there, I trust, about the Word of God. Psalm 19 is like a little microcosm of Psalm 119 where he lists uh, the great things about the Word of God. But in 19.11, he says, Moreover, by them, the Word, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, he says, there is great reward. Great reward. Great blessing. And then lastly, from Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So let's end today by once again realizing that we have a Savior and we have a Lord and we have someone who is compassionate toward us. We have someone in Christ who has experienced every single thing that we could experience in this life. And we, you can read Hebrews four fifteen and 16. He's been through it. He's done it without sin, it says. He's our perfect sacrifice. Praise God. But it says because of that, He knows how to take care of us. This, this speaks of an intimacy, does it not? This speaks of a relationship. It's all about how much we're focused upon Christ. It's all about how much we love Him. If He's first and foremost, if He is indeed Lord, we're centered upon His Word. We're desirous of His Holy Spirit in our life. And our time is up this morning. Let's pray.